Welcome to Ethno Forum. Today's guest is Vancouver native Guy Pellicella. Uh, it's truly a fascinating story. Guy spent nearly 20 years residing in Vancouver's downtown east side, homeless and addicted to drugs. After six overdoses in which he needed to be brought back to life, each time he quite miraculously was able to get clean and turn his life around. Today he's married to his wife. They have three young children. He is sober and he's here to talk about his incredible story. He talks about his experiences on the street and gangs in jail, but he also talks about his path to recovery and how he is using his experiences and his voice to spread a message of hope for addicts, for people struggling with trauma, for children, for everyone, really. Ladies and gentlemen, Guy Filicella. <clears throat> All right, Guy, thanks for doing this. Thanks I, really, for me. I appreciate it. Thanks for um, having me. Why don't you start off? You can introduce yourself and uh, I guess tell, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and why, uh, why, why we're here. Why, why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Guy Felicella, and I'm the peer clinical advisor for the BC Center on Substance Use and Vancouver Coastal Health Regional Addiction Program. Um, I'm married with uh, three young kids uh, have my own uh, public speaking company as well where I do talks in high schools um, universities galas conferences done a couple of TED talks uh, really just you know uh, advocate for 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 people um, you know people often call me a harm reduction and recovery advocate um, which I just reality wise is that I advocate for, you know, people and, uh, my life today looks tremendously different from the life I've lived for, uh, decades. Um, you know, I grew up in Richmond. I came from a, you know, a middle-class family that, uh, worked really hard in the community and owned their own business, well-respected. Uh, have one brother, one sister, and you know lived in a nice house and had money and all that stuff. But uh, you know inside that that house there was some dysfunctional stuff, uh, you know verbal abuse. And uh, my dad wasn't around much. Um, you know my mom drank, uh, and so for me as a little kid, seeing all these things, the fighting, the back and forth, it really just developed my own anxiety and depression, uh, self hatred towards myself. I was often blamed as well, uh, <clears throat> you know, because I started acting out, brought a lot of attention from, you know, school systems, the police, and, you know, so often just probably looked upon as a, as a scapegoat and, um, you know, struggled with coping, undiagnosed learning disabilities, never, you know, I often say to people, it was like, you know, I wasn't... I knew things were different in my family when I went over to somebody else's house and saw how different it was there. Yeah. It was where I really realized that, wow, like this is not, this doesn't exist in my household. And I described it as basically my cl my childhood as, uh, you know, cloudy with uh, with the chance of of thunder and lightning, <laughs> and when, you know that that's when you when you think about that, that's the unpredictableness. Mm -hmm. And when you live in an unpredictable environment, things can change yeah. rapidly. And so they, they did. So at what age did that kind of start changing for you? Like, you know, the experiences you've had, the life that you lived, 
you know, when did that kind of start taking off for you as, as a young adult? As a young uh, well, kid? I mean, you know, I started running away from home at 12 okay. and uh, started getting involved with gangs, started getting involved with drugs, mm -hmm. and drugs really... That was at the age of 12? 12, 12. Really? Street drugs, yeah. That changed the trajectory of... You know, I was at an interesting point in my life then. Like, I really wanted to end it. Mm. Like, I didn't care if I was going to live or, or die. You know, often felt this sense of sadness inside. But when I found drugs, man, mm. it was like, oh, well, this is, this is easy. Mm. I use these. I don't have to feel the way I feel. And I, I don't care what other people think anymore. Right. So it just turned into one of those things Unfortunately for me, what I didn't realize at that young age was the fact that um, that those drugs were going to be the things that were going to replace absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And you don't understand that. Uh, I started getting involved, getting uh, the cops were coming, bringing me back home. I'd leave and then finally, you know, uh, incarcerated at the age of 14 for one year uh, in juvenile detention. And that's when my Mom made me uh, a ward of the court, which meant that uh, you were going to live in group homes. Mm. After that, you weren't going to go back home. So, you know, struggle with being accepted. Mm. And, you know, people say that I was hyper difficult and hard to manage. But yet, you know, nobody looked any deeper to see, like, why mm. is he... You know, why is the why out of it? And mm -hmm. so for for me, it drugs became just that that avenue that was replacing everything. What kind of drugs were you using at 12? So it started with weed, LSD, mushrooms, MDMA, mm -hmm. and quickly progressed. You know, uh, by the time I was 16, we were talking heroin, mm -hmm. cocaine. Um, yeah. And, and when you're young, I always tell this to people, it's like, it's not as easy just to, you know, continue an ongoing habit, especially when it becomes cocaine and heroin, and especially in the 80s when I'll tell you cocaine was like 200 bucks a gram. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, I, you know, scrounged together 20 bucks and go buy some, some coke and, you know, five minutes later, I I'm got nothing. Yeah. Did you respond differently to, to heroin, like as opposed to, to cocaine? Yeah, I've, I, I, found, I've, I found for me heroin did, did, did one thing. It was a, it was, it was a, it was a feeling that, that, that took away things, mm. Ma made you feel, feel comfortable. Mm. And uh, when I used it, it was just, it gave my, I, I just couldn't relax. I always felt that I was tense. Mm. And when I would do heroin, it would just be like oh yeah like right. it, it was loose right loosen everything up right um and 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 be able to to, to function mm. my challenges were though i was never the social drug user mm. i was the let's get wasted drug user right and there's a big difference mm. i just wanted to keep partying Mm. And people are like, we're going to go home. There's no money left. And I was like, well, we can figure something out. Yeah. And that's where, um, for me, it was, it was a lot different. Mm. So you said you went to juvie around that time. Yeah. What was, what was that like? <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. You, you said you were 14? 14, yeah. Right. I got sentenced to a place under the Young Offenders Act back then. It was like 1984. Mm. 
And uh, I remember the date. You know how I remember the date is because the lady, the counselor, Sandy Gooby, because I, when I was leaving prison, I was saying, oh, you'll forget me. She goes, I'll never forget you, Guy Felicella. Uh, she was the one that just really cared about me in prison. Mm. And she was my counselor. And she, I said, why is that? And she goes, because you came here December 7th. And I was like, what's that mean? She was saying, well, for me, it's a significance because that's when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Interesting. And... Uh, her uncle or somebody like fought uh, and she said I'll never forget that day and that was the day that you arrived here and she goes other than that I'd never forget you either because we've had so many talks I actually when I went into prison I was crying because I was so afraid and when I left prison I was crying because I didn't want to go really and she was like you you can't stay and I said well I'll go to your crime and I'll come back and she said you'll never come back to this place again you'll go to the youth detention center. Mm. This was more of a, of a, like a minimum security juvenile detention okay. center run by the Salvation Army in Langley called House of Concord. Okay. And um, now that I live pretty close in the community, I've actually driven by where it used to be. It's now townhouses, but... Do you know where that is? Yeah, it's right across from the Langley Event Center. Okay, so yeah, I went to high school at Mountain Secondary, which is... It's actually on the grounds of of Langley Event Center, so I yeah, that, I know that area. Yeah, so that's where you, that's where it was or it used to be. Yeah, interesting. And when I left, when it was my release date, June, I was being sent to a group home in uh, UBC area on Tenth and Tolmy. Sandy Gooby, who was my counselor, she took me out. We went to see uh, a movie. Went to Keg. Mm-hmm. And we went to Firestarter the, with uh, Drew. Drew Barrymore. Okay. And uh, it was big, big movie back in the day, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, let's just get out of here. <laughs> but I remember when she ordered her steak, she ordered it blue. And so they asked me, how do you want your steak? And I said, blue. And she says, no, he doesn't want it blue. He wants it medium rare. And I was like, well, why can't I have it blue? And she goes, it's raw. <laughs> I was like, well, you eat raw meat? <laughs> she goes hard for a counselor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think... You, you didn't want to leave juvie. Yeah, I, th- I think a few things, but I, I really think that sadly for me, like jail is a safer place sometimes mm. to, you know, worry about. I figured things out. Mm. The challenge in my life is that I've always been bounced around from place to place. Mm. And that's tremendous anxiety on how I have to figure out how people are going to treat me or act or, you know, so I go to a group home and. When I went to this group home, she even told me, you're going to love it. It's going to take some time. But once you get adjusted, it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be so good. This is a good place. And she was right. And when I went there, I cried. Mm. And they were so good. But after a year, I had to leave. Mm. And I didn't want to leave. Right. And so what happens is that... Was that just because of age or... It's just because there's, it's just a program right. that was one year and then they were moving you to another place and I did not want to go. And then the next place they moved me to, I was just like, you know what? You guys just keep bouncing me around like, like I'm, I'm nobody mm-hmm. or a number mm-hmm. and forget it. So I started running away and coming into the downtown east side. Right. How old were you then? Well, I've been like in the 17. downtown. I've been in the downtown east side even before that. Okay. Like from Richmond, I used to come down here and score my dope and go back to Richmond. Right, gotcha. And so, even the first time I got pulled over by cops, I was like 12 years old. Mm. I'd stolen a hundred bucks off my dad, 
and came out here to buy buy some dope. And there used to be a subway at uh, just right over, actually, from your studio, right in uh, Pigeon Park. There used to be a sub stop okay. there. And I knew that's where you go get drugs. And right. so I went in there and I picked up some LSD and some weed. And came with a buddy and, you know, kind of big venture. And anyway, I got pulled over by the cops. And the cops were like, hey, what are you kids doing down here? And we were, I was just like, oh, we just came to the pawn shops to, to look for, oh, what are you coming to pawn shops for? You selling stuff? You got stolen stuff? And we were, I was just like, uh, no, I was just looking for deals. <laughs> well, how much money you got in your pocket? And I was just like freaked out. And I was yeah. like, oh, these guys are assholes. Yeah. And then the cop just said to me, you guys got any drugs? And we were like, no, we don't do drugs. And they're like, well, this area is littered with people who use and do drugs. So coming down here, I'm going to think you're using drugs. And I was like, well, we're just kind of, we can't go shop. No, go shopping in another area. If we see you down here again, we're going to arrest you. Right. And that was it for me. I was just like, okay, these guys are losers. <laughs> don't, don't talk to the police. They're mean. Right. And that's, and then years later, when I was venturing in here, it was always about, trying to hide from them but when I left group homes obviously being a ward of the court it's another layer mm -hmm. so they report you that you're missing right and so you're just trying to hide from everybody mm. so what would you say the difference is now kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here you know obviously you're you're a 16 year old yeah. trying to score some drugs that's going to be you know that makes sense because from my understanding the general culture around <clears throat> the criminality of drugs I feel has maybe changed a little bit here in BC, you know, in recent years. I don't know how accurate of a statement that is, but is it different now compared to then in terms of how police would handle users or addicts, let's say particularly on the downtown east side? It's starting to, yeah. We're getting, obviously, the decriminalization of drugs for 2.5 grams is going to be in place in January where police cannot take anybody's drugs as long as they have under 2.5 grams. But I'll tell you something, on my, I have 55 plus convictions, all drug related. Mm. So when you actually think about that, and some weren't even drugs, back in the day, they could arrest you for just carrying paraphernalia and throw you in jail. Right. And I mean, when you think about like the amount of money that costs and prison isn't about rehabilitation, it's right. about incarceration. Mm -hmm. I could go to, I mean, I was good at doing time. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it since I was a kid. It was like, that's, you know, they were thinking it's a deterrent or it's going to help me. I was just like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, a, I had an attitude. It was like I, I knew what to expect. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, lived experience on things, you can't buy it, but it sure does cost a lot. Right. And it, and it did, in my life especially, but it gave me the wisdom to actually see things in a different way. Mm. Do you think that this movement towards decriminalization, you know, you can have two and a half grams or whatever it is now. Do you think that's like, that's a step in the right direction? Well, yeah, because, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, people use substances, mm -hmm. right? If we think that everybody who uses illicit drugs has an addiction, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of the mindset of society. Mm -hmm. if, if that were true, then you'd look at anybody that walked into a liquor store and say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, they got a problem. They go and get liquor. <laughs> That's not the case. There is, you know, right now in society, we have a crisis of not knowing what you're consuming. Right. 
So it looks the same, tastes the same, but ain't the same potency. Mm -hmm. And that's what's killing people. Now, decriminalization doesn't address that, doesn't change the illicit drug supply. But what it does do is it means you can't be punished for using those substances up up to an extent. But Mm -hmm. obviously, as well, you can't sell those substances because it's still illegal to sell. Mm -hmm. When was it when you got here to the downtown east side and, and ended up staying? So like from 83 to 93, mm-hmm. I was really in and out, you know. I even tried to go get a life from like 1989 to 1993, you know. People were saying he's got to get off drugs and his life will get better. And You know, I met a girl and fell in love and, you know, had a job and I was trying really hard. But man, it was just painful being Guy Felicella. Mm-hmm. And um, from 1993 to 2013, I never left the downtown east side of Vancouver. Wow. So for, I just, I just walked away from, from everything. Mm. And I mean, even when I was trying to do good, I was still messing up all the time. I'd work and get a paycheck and, you know, go blow it all on cocaine. Mm-hmm. And then come home and then, you know, your girlfriend's just angry and, you know, you do it again and again and again and again. And it was just a, it was just a revolving door. And, and it was really just because I was struggling to be me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, obviously in any relationship like that, you know, she did her best to love me and support me. And, but I just wasn't in a place that uh, I was able to deal with the demons Mm. And so the drugs were my way of dealing with the demons. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I when I got down, I just walked away. And, you know, look back and and uh, you know, with a lot of regret on that. And, you know, a lot of regret is in my life of the damage that I caused a lot of people as well. I understand that. That's why I do what I do today to try to you know give back and help people because uh, you know I took a lot. So just for some context for the listener, our studio where we're where we're recording this is essentially located, you know, right on the edge of, of the downtown east side, uh, in the heart of Gastown. And when you walked in, you know, the stairs kinda of overlooked the alley and, and you were saying, Oh, I used to use right there. Um what was you know, what was it like living in the downtown east side? You know, people will drive through or, or, or walk past or walk through you know, and we kind of have an idea of what it looks like from the outside, but you lived it, right? And especially from your perspective of having come out on the other side, you know, yeah, what was it like? One, one thing down here that really re- resonated with me is pain. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with pain. I see others struggling with pain. You know, and it was comforting to know that I wasn't alone in that. And so when you're in a community where people are all struggling, but yet trying to function, make it work, mm. doing the best you can to just survive sometimes, it was, it was, a, it, it was comforting. Mm. And then it also at the same time, uh, it was very punishing. Mm. You know, decades of being homeless, it, it takes a tremendous toll on a person, not only physically, but, but mentally, you know, sleeping on concrete or... You know, it's, 
it's taxing. And then on top of that, you know, having a, a substance use disorder as well. Um, and mine never ending, just nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, selling drugs, using drugs, doing drugs. Mm. And that's just how my life revolved. And uh, yeah, when I saw your back alley out here, immediately, oh, I actually said, my wife just says, it's safe to say that you used everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but there's some places where even though I was struggling, even though I may not have looked okay, and even though a lot of people might have been afraid of me, you know, one of the things for me is that I was just trying to hide as best as I could from you. I mm. wasn't, I didn't want to bug you either. Yeah. You know, I'm just, listen, like, I'm struggling. Mm. And I'm doing my best not to, I don't want any kids to see me. I don't want anybody to see me. Mm. And so I just tried to find spots where it was like out of the way, you know, if people were going to see me, they were just going to see me in a corner and they were just going to keep walking. But, you know, I, I, I felt, I felt a sense of sadness inside too, because like, this is not how I wanted to live mm. and it's not how anybody should have to live. Mm. And I was just, it was just, it was just at a, at a really painful uh, time in my life. You talk about the community here on the downtown East side, you know, we spoke on the phone before and you were talking about the amount of people, you know, that have passed, you know, what kind of relationships did you form when, when you were living, living here? You know, what was it like forming relationships here on the downtown east side? Yeah, I mean, I have so many, so many friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're gone, but so many that are still still around. You know, one of the things, too, when, you know, when uh, a lot of the missing, murdered missing women down here, when Picton was taking people. Right. I remember my friend, he used to uh, uh, prostitute up in the corner of uh, Hastings and Gore. I remember one time coming up to me and saying, look, I know you don't you know, like always having to possibly talk to the cops, but I need a favor from you. And I was like, what's that? She was like, I just need you to watch me go into um, a car and take the license plate down. And if I don't come back, you have to go to the police to give them that license plate. And I was like, a what? Mm. And I didn't even think about it then. And did you know that that was going on at the time? Or? I mean, I knew there was stuff going on. You mm -hmm. know, we were worried about people. But when years later, I seen her and she came up to me and she was sober. And she gave me a hug and she, we were talking and she was like, I just wanted to say, listen, you, when you came and you took the license plate numbers... And, you know, I'd come find you to let you know I was okay. Mm. Like, thanks for doing that. And, I, I, and she goes, I was just really scared. I didn't even see that back then. Wow. And I almost, like, lost it. Yeah, no kidding. Eh? And I was just like, oh, man, I'm just so happy you're doing well. Mm. And that was one of the things where, you know, we tried to just take care of each other. Because, honestly and sadly, I mean, the rest of the society didn't really care. Mm. You know, we had a one in four were uh, uh, contracted HIV AIDS down here. Right. You know, in the 90s. Survived. I survived that. Mm -hmm. I survived the overdose crisis in 1998 mm -hmm. where, you know, over 400 people died that year. 
I survived, you know, five osteomyelitis bone infections, four in my left leg, one in my back where I had to relearn how to walk again. And then I survived the 2012 to 2013 where I had to be brought back to life six times. Mm. And, you know, you survive decades Mm. of being homeless and you survive all that. And at that gripping moment in my life where I was just like, I'm either going to die in my addiction or I'm going to die trying to get the hell out. Mm. And that was kind of the, the crossroads. So you've talked publicly about this aspect. You, you say that you've been brought back to life six times and that was all overdoses, correct? Correct. Okay. And the last time that you overdosed, you said it, it, it caused you to, to make a significant change in your life. And you, you've talked about the nurse, right? That, that was helping you. Um, why, don't, why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, Sarah Gill, who was the nurse at Insight, February 18th, 2013. And when I woke up, I was gone for like seven minutes, which at that time they said was one of the longest they'd seen. And that took me about 10 minutes to just kind of get the cobwebs out to open my eyes, really. And when I did, she was crying. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, why are you crying? And she was like, because I I care. Mm -hmm. And boom, I just started bawling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was that was the moment. I'll tell you, there's other moments too where drug users down here were telling me, "Dude, you're not good at this no more. You need to do something different. You mm-hmm. suck. <laughs> you keep getting brought back to life, dude." I was just like, "I don't know what's going on anymore." What other contributing factors do you think were at play then? You know, I, I would imagine for someone in your position at that time that a lot of things might have to fall into place, you know, for you to be able to kind of turn that page, right? You know, I, I, I think it goes back to Gabor Mate was my doctor mm-hmm. and where he said to me, can I ask you a question when I was in detox? And I said, yeah. And he said, are you having a, are you enjoying your life? And I was just like, oh, come on. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. And he said, uh, I don't think your problem is the drugs. And I was just like, What? I said, well, everybody keeps saying if I get off the drugs, my life will get better. And every time I did get off the drugs, my life didn't get significantly better. It was just painful to be me. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I just think there's a reason why you use them the way you do. And that just dropped like a missile into my life. And I was just like, what? And then he just said, tell me about your childhood. And I couldn't even open my mouth. Mm. I just, tears just started coming down my face. I don't even know how, how I started crying. And he just said to me, hey, look, buddy, it's going to be okay, man. We're going to work on some things and we're going to figure some things out. Mm. Lo and behold, diagnosed with uh, ADHD. Mm. And I used to just think I was stupid my whole life. Mm. So you live with that shame. You live with the shame of the damage that you cause people. Mm. You live with the shame of how you're living. You live with the shame of how society rejects you for everything. How way people looked at me, pointed fingers at me, wouldn't let me allow me to use the bathroom, even though I was just trying to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And then yell at me for going to the bathroom in the alley. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just like, man, what? Like, there's no place for me in this world? Mm-hmm. And at, at, when I was diagnosed with that, I mean, that gave me the awareness of me. I was like, so I'm not stupid. And uh, I remember... The specialist was like, no, you're actually really intelligent because you've had to function through life 
without having a diagnosis. Right. And look at you, you're here. Mm. And giving somebody the awareness of their, not only their trauma, but also of themselves somewhat, can really, I started to put the pieces together. Mm. And so when I did go that last time, I left the downtown east side, one set of clothes on my back, and a welfare check. Mm. Nothing. And went to a recovery house in Surrey. Now, this ain't a treatment facility. I've been to treatment. A stinking recovery house. Just a house with people in it. And the one rule there is if you use drugs, we're kicking you out. If you don't use them, you can stay. Mm. I was like, sign me up. And, uh, you know, my, the advice given to me back then is, hey, if you really want to stop using drugs and you want to hear the, 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 the biggest impact, I was like, yeah, tell me. Stop hanging around people using them. I said, well, yeah, I'm sure that'll help. (laughs) (laughs) And I got around these guys, and lo and behold, I started, you know, going to these meetings, and, you know, my ADHD doesn't allow me to pay attention for too long, you know, somebody talking, but I always paid attention, I think, just enough. But when I always, I'm always drawn by people's authenticity or the emotional connection. Like somebody gets on a podium and starts, you know, just talking about recovery or how they made it. Somebody goes onto the podium and starts, you know, talking about and getting emotional about their lives. Mm -hmm. That impacts me. Mm -hmm. When I see, I develop an emotional relationship to the pain. And sometimes it's, sometimes you have to feel that pain Mm -hmm. just to let the, the tears out because that's a, that's a way to start releasing things. I went to this recovery house and I went to an outpatient program. So five days a week I had to go. Right. It was my job. I have a job. Mm-hmm. I get 90 bucks a month from welfare, living in a recovery house. They would feed me, take, uh, have enough money to buy a carton of smokes, which I had to manage. Mm-hmm. I had nothing. Mm-hmm. Humble beginnings. And I mean, like to go out for coffee with people, I'd have to budget everything. I didn't even know how to budget, but, but people were like teaching me. Mm. And um, went to this outpatient program and there, you know, you got like awards if you showed up five days a week and you were the, you know, doing well, they would give you like a $25 visa. And so, you know, you get incentives and, you right. know, we'd go bowling and instead of going to group one day, we'd show up and they'd be like, hey, we're all going 10 pin bowling. I was like, bowling? Mm. I haven't done bowling in forever. Yeah. And you go do bowling and what happens is is that when you get into recovery, the stuff that you used to love is gone from your addiction. But mm. it's not gone to the point where it can't be retrieved. Mm. It's like you have to go back into the memory bank and pull things up and be like, Man, what did I used to I what did I used to like doing? I used to like playing sports, I used to like watching sports. And so that I started to remember things that I enjoyed. And when I started doing those things, I, I started to feel a little bit more self-esteem about myself mm-hmm. and started gaining traction. It, it, to me, it, it seems crazy in a way that you lived that life and survived six overdoses and you're, you're here now. Like, do you, do you look back and does that seem like a different life to you? Like, does that seem like 
Well, I know you had mentioned that you, you were Tony on the downtown east side, right? Not Guy. So I, I always used, uh, yeah, I mean, I was down here. The only people that knew me by my first and last name were the police. So when I did hear that name, I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, going to jail. Yeah. So Tony was uh, just kind of the alter personality of, of Guy. And the reason why, I don't know, I picked Tony is maybe it was common. Maybe it was Italian. Uh, I liked it. I don't know. I used it because uh, it was too painful to be Guy Felicella. Mm. Yeah. Do you do you look back on that time of your life as like okay that that was that's a different guy? Like is that a do you feel it's a different life? Do you feel that that's it's still you? Like yeah. Now, I, I mean, yeah, completely different person. Yeah. Like for sure. I think change when you have change that happens in your in somebody's life. I've seen a lot of darkness in my life. I've seen a lot of good. Mm. I've seen a lot of mean people, but I've also seen a lot of beautiful people. Mm. I see a lot of people that care, and I see a lot of people that don't understand. And I think, I think the one thing that I've learned in, in me is that um, once I was able to put the pieces together and start getting some therapy for the stuff that I was struggling with, that I should have had way back when I was like seven, eight years old, I started to deal with the, those battles. And, you know, the battles for some people is that if you make a mistake, you could just get up and walk away. I made a mistake. I'd want to jump off a bridge. And when hang, you, hang on one sec. Yeah. I heard that one. Yeah. Cisco. Fucking <laughs> <Get> Cisco. <laughs> like, come on, dude. I know. We're shooting her. Yeah. They um, go yell at him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you just hold your delivery? Yeah. Hey, pal, back off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now just You'll get back in the truck yeah, and leave. Exactly. <laughs> I'll be Tony for 10 yeah, minutes. Gonna like, say, we're going to leave. Yeah. They wrote, yeah, yeah, there's, a mad, there's a madman in the back of the alley yelling at us to get the hell out of here. We'll have to come back another <laughs> yeah. day. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was just like, uh, it was just, you know, two different people. Mm. Uh, the person that... Uh, that's here today is just that I, my wife describes it as yeah Tony's in the basement locked up we keep him we keep him down there he's you know that what do you talk about we don't talk about Bruno the animated oh, cartoon no. I, no 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 so Bruno is the guy that lives behind the walls in the house okay. <laughs> you gotta watch it my right. kids watch it. I'm crying <laughs> I cry at the Grinch I take my kids to the movie and we cry in the Grinch my wife looks over and goes See, babe, you never hated Christmas. You just hated being alone at Christmas. And I'm like oh, sobbing in the Grinch. Yeah, yeah. No so kidding. it's like I get these these pinpoints of where I viewed things wrong, too. You know, I honestly just hated being alone, man. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid that I'd die alone. Mm-hmm. And so the drugs just helped me with that. Yeah, at what point did you feel that you started getting through that a little bit, um, right? Where you didn't feel that maybe you needed to be alone or that you could you could open up and obviously you've got a family now. Like, when did that start to change for you? Yeah, I mean, I think every time I went into treatment, I'd open up a little bit, mm. but I'd always gauge of like, okay, what can I... I can't say all this stuff. Like, it's kind of like you can't empty the vault. Mm. And that was probably, you know, one of the reasons why it's just so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I, when I met my wife, she was the one that didn't judge me. Actually, I think when I first met her, 
Like, I was surprised that she was talking to me. Mm. My other was like, who are you talking to? How did you! you How did you guys meet? <laughs> how, how did you guys meet? So, interesting story is uh, I met her dad. Her dad's in AA. Okay. And I was sitting at a meeting one day when I left the downtown east side. At a meeting. I have one set of clothes and a pair of sandals. And it's, I think it's like March. So, it's cold out. And this guy is just like... Hey, uh, you don't have any shoes? And I was like, and he introduced himself. He's like, hey, my name's Ron. And I'm just like, ah, oh, whatever. I was like, no, I'm waiting for my uh, check to go get some shoes. And he's like, oh, yeah, where are you living? And I was like, oh, at the recovery house down the road. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're there? Oh, great, great, great. He goes, hey, listen, uh, here's my number. Uh, give me a call on Saturday. You want to you go get get a coffee and some breakfast? And I was like, uh, sure. He's like, okay, give me a call on Saturday. I'll come pick you up. I called him and he's like, oh, hey, guy. And he comes by and picks me up and takes me out. I think we went to Ricky's. While we were at Ricky's in Surrey, he's like, hey, listen, I want to do something. I was like, what's that? And he's like, well, I'm going to take you shopping and get you some clothes and some shoes and I was like, well, I can't pay you back. Like, I just, that's like, I don't have much money. He's like, I didn't ask you to pay me back. He said, uh, if you stick around one day, you'll understand. And I was like, and the guy took me out. He spent like, like 7,800 bucks. He doesn't even know me. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know how I paid him back? I married his daughter and gave him three grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> when I first met her, I was doing a painting project at his house. So you say, hey, you want to come over and help me paint the fence? I was like, yeah, sure. So I'm doing new things and learning new skills and, you know, helping people. And I just loved it. Mm. I love doing something for somebody else. Mm. And uh, so I went over there and I had like a, uh, you know, white tank top on. And I'm all tattoos up and I'm walking around his, you know, his house. And all of a sudden I see this beautiful blonde girl come walking down the stairs and she jumps and she's like oh my who are you and I was and then she just books it and then she goes to dad she goes oh my god dad there's a guy tattoos neck tattoos tattoos in our house oh that's guy yeah 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 great I want to introduce that's my daughter Brienne and you know what I was like wow I was just like stunned yeah and um Interesting story because I had court in the downtown east side and Ron was supposed to, to take me. Mm. And he, he, he actually worked for Cisco as, as we heard that truck. <laughs> That's why I started laughing. That's right. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and so he said, hey, I can't, I can't take you to the downtown east side, but my, my daughter's going to pick you up and, and take you. And when I jumped in her car, I was just kind of like, is Ron really your dad? And she was like, yeah, why? And I was just like, well, I've never met your mother, but your, your mom must be beautiful because your dad's just butt ugly. And she laughed her head off. And she was like, no, he's my real dad. And I was like, okay. And anyway, we, you know, we just, we became friends. She already was in a relationship with somebody else at the time. And, mm. Um, I was involved in one as well, and um, 
Yeah, and then uh, I, when I left the recovery house, she had a condo, but she was living with her boyfriend, and they let me rent the condo out, and I stayed there, and mm. one thing led to another, and then we became, you know, we were good friends, hanging out, having coffee, and then, you know, what happens with that yeah. <laughs> sometimes, right? Yeah. Just things happen. Yeah. And they did. And they did. Yeah. So I think kind of, like, what's interesting is you had said before, that you've seen a lot of darkness, but you've seen a lot of beautiful people as well. And like the nurse of your, your last overdose and, and your father-in-law now and, and stuff like that. Like, I, I feel like there's these kind of pockets and even like the counselor in, in juvie, right? Like there's these people within the system that probably some of them maybe really care, right? And they do it... For, because they care and they do these things because they want to. Um, but for some reason, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect with the system as a whole, right? And I don't know if you can speak to that at all, where you have the people within are doing it for the right reasons and probably do really give a shit. But why does that not jive with the system? Yeah. Right? Like, is, is that, does that make sense at all? Totally. I mean, I think what's happened is that we've developed a you know, programming of how we view things, mm. you know, and usually that's based on our laws and policies. It's mm-hmm. been passed down. For you ever ask somebody like, well, why do you believe illicit drugs shouldn't be regulated? Mm. But why do you believe alcohol should? We've, le- I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh yeah, wait. Mm. You know, and a lot of our laws and policies are born in a racism towards people and discrimination. And so you're branded um, either, you know, a person who's a taxpayer or you're a criminal. Mm. And that's the category in the box that you get put in. Mm. And so you have a system that's dysfunctional and yet you have people in there um, that are not institutionalized to the system. Mm. They're still human beings and they see beyond that. Like one of the things, too, I always say to people is that when you sit down with somebody especially if you're a health practitioner, mental health, or harm reduction advocate, recovery advocate, or anybody. It's not just you and them. It's you, them, and every traumatic experience that they've ever gone through in their lives mm. sitting right in front of you. And so I often say, like, you know, I think one of the things I've often looked upon back in my life is I've remembered how people always made me feel. And if you were one of the ones that made me feel good, even though I was struggling, if you had me a sandwich on the street or a cigarette or stopped by to say hi and bought me a coffee, gave me a hamburger, gave me 20 bucks, whatever. Like, you didn't have to do that. Mm. But that meant a lot. At a time in my life when I don't need you to pile on that, hey, you're not living up to the standards of life. Yeah, like, I know, buddy. Like, <laughs> I don't need to hear it, though. <laughs> yeah. But I'm struggling. Yeah, but I'm trying to survive and it was like when I was down here I think the basis of my life was like how do I survive mm. but also how do I survive without dealing with the pain mm. and so that's why Tony was this mean angry dude that people stayed away from because mm. I didn't want you to see inside me because mm. it was too painful and when that doctor got inside I mean, that's what, that's what the kindness did. It chipped away at all the madness and the anger. And finally, it just broke. 
mm. and somebody got in at the right time. I always say there's like three phases. To, there's a seed planter, and a person comes along, waters, and then there's somebody going to come around and watch, and watch it grow. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so all three are vitally important. Mm. We just stay at the seed side. Mm-hmm. We don't think that it's going to change. And so people say that to me. Oh, those people are never going to change. I say, hey, listen, today could be the day. Yeah. And, you know, in my life, it, it was. It was that right moment, right opportunity, right timing. And, you know, oftentimes when I wanted to get help, it was at 3 in the morning. Hey, this is a great time for me to like get me into detox. Let's do this. Mm. Oh no, you can't get in for two weeks. It's like, oh, two weeks? That's defeating. Right. Why do you do you ever think like why why you like how you got out of this or how you got out of that point in your life and why other people don't? Yeah, well, I tell you this, like, even though I was good at using dope and doing all the things that I, you know, or thought I was good at using dope, I should say, because yeah. um, <laughs> I wasn't really good at it. But even even though, you know, I had a desire inside, and I always had this chip. Like, oh, you can't do that. It's like, what? Why not? What makes you think I can't do it? Because you're just... You're either this or that. And, uh, you know, I, I think people a lot of the times down here thought this guy's going to die. Well, actually, I know they thought that. Well, you did a few times. Also. Yeah, but right. like, I mean, gone and never get right. to come back. Right. And I just had people used to see me on the street going into detox again, like after I had left a week before. And they'd be like, why are you going back up there, dude? Like you just leave in a week. I was like, I just got to keep trying. Mm. And I've always been a determinate you know, determined to, to do something different. And I kept trying and trying and trying and trying and trying build success in people. Mm-hmm. And in anything in life, if you give up trying, you don't have anything. So we don't celebrate that people are trying. They are. I walked down here. I was here. I got here at 1130. And the reason why is because when I come down here, I want to talk to people. When you come down here now, like you're here today, when do you ever run into people you know or used to know in the area? Every day. Yeah. Yeah. It takes me about an hour to walk a half block. Really? Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, people use that as the source as their own inspiration. Yeah. And to think the thing is, is too, it's like, you know, I always say this to people, it's like, ah, I, had, I had some street cred. Mm. So when people saw me, they like, damn, this guy, bad news. Bad dude. He got better. Not only did he change, I, hey, I'll tell you a story too. A buddy of mine who's down here, he's, he had a brand new cell phone. And he wanted, just give me 50 bucks, brand new Samsung. I can't remember, it was like eight or 30 or whatever they are now. Samsung, I don't know. Nokia, like yeah, yeah. it was like yeah. it was a couple of years ago. Oh, okay, and he was like, I just need fifty bucks, and I was like, Look, I just want to tell you something. I lived that life where I, you know, under normal circumstances, I would I would buy stuff that I knew could be possibly stolen, or you know, and I just said to him, I said, Look, <clears throat> I don't I don't want it. I know you'll sell it. It's a good deal. 
but I'll go spend 800 bucks. And there's a reason to that. I used to buy and do that stuff. You know me. Mm. And if I open that world, I might just fall back in it again. Mm. And I said, listen, I don't want the phone, but here's 10 bucks. Keep the phone. And he looked at me and you know what he said? Man, you really have changed. And I was like, yeah. Mm. People used to see me down here and be like, hey, you just getting out of jail? Mm. I, I was like, no, I've been in recovery. Oh, you in recovery? Yeah, how long has it been now? I'm like, eight years. They're like, weren't we just getting high like, like a year ago? I was like, no, that was like seven and a half years ago. And they're like, oh, man, time flies. Yeah, wow. And, and that's the truth, man. Mm. Time rips by. Mm. And, you know, for, for me, when I come down here and see people, you know, I like to hand a few people some few bucks here and there and, you know, talk and, you know, just saw my friend Lisa lives up at Portland there and Portland Housing Society. And we just had a great chat and she, you know, we were kids when we met down here and she's still down here, but she's, you know, she even says to me, oh yeah, man, just, you know, I don't use as much anymore. You know, it's not the same as it was when we were down here. And I was like, yeah, it was, it, it was a lot differently. And I, I, I say that with, you know, still the same, similar issues of the, the poverty and the homelessness stuff, but the drug supply has really just changed people's, um, you know, character. Mm. A lot of desperation, a lot mm. of benzo withdrawal, which is vicious. And so, so you get people, you know, acting out of anger and frustration because of it, because mm. they can't get help. And so they, they take it out, you know, on on people I used to you know even even in businesses down here you know I used to say it's like you know I wasn't a guy just to throw a brick at anybody's window or anything I just wasn't who I was but you know I often describe that it's like try going in and asking for help for three weeks and nobody's giving it to you you can be angry too they didn't mean to throw a brick at your window or you know people always say why would they do that it wasn't because they're targeting you or trying to you know uh you know mess with you they're just pissed off Mm. and i I think sometimes you know we have to we definitely have to do a better job at giving people access to supports Mm. that's something that we're dramatically failing in Mm. what are what are some ways you think that that could be improved I mean, just, you know, the barriers of going into a health facility to ask for, like, can I just talk to somebody? Can I get on some, you know, you can get on methadone and everything and, you know, that stuff's relatively easy. But what about, what about the stuff that I was struggling with? Mm. Like, what about the trauma? What about like having a facility where you could go talk to somebody if you wanted to? What about the facility where you could go get, like, you could talk to somebody that could actually give you a timeline to get housing? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like physically, not yep. just call his number. Yep. And, uh, you know, seeing some progress. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that oftentimes that was really challenging in my life is that I wasn't able to see any progress. And I, I think that was. Do you mean like from a social perspective? Yeah, like yeah. any progress. It seemed like I was always like, I was always going to have to fight because of my past mm. like I was always going to be judged because of that like because I had a criminal record you know to get a job 
when I left here, I I volu- people wouldn't even hire me. They were too. They were like, oh, this guy wants a job. Mm. Well, was you know, what do we tell him again? I don't know if we can give him a job. But we don't know how stable he is yet. Mm. I volunteered for nine months because I just wanted to do something. Yep. So people didn't give me like you know that's the thing. We don't give people shots. Mm. And so you're criminalized not only for... You, I did my time. Mm. But yet our society will still punish you for your past. Mm. Still bring it up. Go try to rent a place to live. Mm. Criminal record. Go try to get a job with criminal record. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, you know what? Yeah, I have a criminal record, but I, I paid my debt to society. That's not the person that's here today. Mm. But we have... a. a our minds go back to that. It's like my asterisk was like, I worked at Expo 86. Okay. Right? Yeah. I worked at Earl's in 91 and then nothing mm. until 2014. Mm. And your people are like, what happened? Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of disappeared. Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I got lost. Yeah. <laughs> and people are just like, you know, when I got a, when I finally got hired, I volunteered, and the guy said, "Hey, you know what, dude? You you really good at what you do. Mm. I can, I want to start paying you. He said, I can pay much. Well, I'll pay eight hundred bucks a month under the table. I was just like, yeah, yeah. And I was about to have my first child. And I was getting some money, and you know, it was my wife was so proud of me." And then I got, and then after that, I got a job at a, at a, at a private treatment center. And people told me, you never get a job there. Mm. I was like, why not? And they're like, well, they don't hire anybody that didn't go through their program. I was like, I got a job there because I knew the director and he hired me. Right. And then when I left there to go get a job at Vancouver Coastal Health, you know what the people told me? You can't get a job there. Why Mm. not? You don't have a master's degree. I was like, yeah, I do. Where, where, what school did you go to? I went to the School of Hard Knocks. That's a master's degree. Yeah. And I got hired there. Yeah. And then they told me you'd never be anything but an outreach worker. My wife tells people, don't tell him that he can't do something mm. because he's driven. And I think that drive was even reflected in my life where people in the streets would see me and be like, He's never going to amount to anything. You know, I finally turned, my thing was is that I crushed under pressure before. Mm. Now I thrive under pressure. Mm. I think that pressure is brought on from the characteristics that you develop living a challenging life. Mm. And it showed up. Now I'm just a driven individual, but not only driven to help people, but also driven to be better for myself, for my Mm. kids to not pass on trauma, to do the things that, to be present in their lives, mm. you know, and to listen. And, you know, I'm kind of the, the goofy Disney dad, you know. Love my, it. my kids my kids just make me laugh my head off. It's I just love like, it. I'm like, these guys are nuts. <laughs> I'm living, my wife says, oh, he's used to chaos. He yeah. thrives in chaos. Mm. So put three kids running around screaming and yelling, it's chaos. And it's just kind of like, it's like, okay, I know how to do here. Yeah. This is how you survive it. So, How old are your kids? Uh, Noah's turning eight in uh, September and uh, Gia just turned six. Okay. And Leo is bad, badass too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Terrible twos. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
is that is this something that you would speak openly with them about to a certain degree at, at some point when they're old enough yeah yeah it's interesting have my you, daughter have you thought about that? yeah we brought them down here a few times okay went to the Powell street festival a japanese you know yep. festival there and you know, you do teachable moments. My daughter was like, uh, she was four at the time. And she was like, Dad, Dad, the man's, somebody's sleeping on the street. And you just kneel down and talk to her and you tell her that, you know, some people, you you lucky. You have a house. Some people don't have a home to live. But they're no different than you. They just have uh, challenging circumstances. Mm-hmm. When we park back, like, kids remember everything. My daughter, when she got out, we parked because we used to go to this uh, virtuous pie down here to to eat. We parked in the same spot. My daughter got out of the car this time, and she was like, Dad, Dad, the man's not on the street. He must have got housing. And that's because I kneeled down with her, and I just told her, I just said, gee, I wish the rest of the world thought like you. But I said, yeah, he could have got housing. And she was just, so she's not afraid of it. My kids can be eating a peanut butter sandwich at Pigeon Park. Everything going on around you. They don't see that. Mm. Not jaded, not skewed, not enough information, Mm. right? Not no bias, no judgment. You know what they're there there for? They're there with their mom, they're there with their dad, they're eating a peanut butter sandwich on a park bench, and they just see people doing their thing. Mm. But they don't don't have any connection to it. Like you had said before, and on that note, you had said before, you've seen darkness and you've seen beauty. You'd think that what you've been through would really make you feel jaded about the world, right? You would think. I don't get that vibe from you, right? Yeah. You have every reason in my mind to be like, no, f- like, fuck that. Yeah. But I don't get that vibe at all from you. Yeah, I'm not the guy that wants to be angry anymore. Yeah. I did that a long time, mm-hmm. and it just never really worked out. You know, anger is one of those things for me. It was just toxic poison. And I'm drinking poison expecting you to die, mm-hmm. and you ain't dying. I am. <laughs> I was just like, this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And that's where I started to realize, I was just like, man, how do I not? It's not that I'm not angry sometimes at things and circumstances. Angry makes me motivated, though. Mm. And, you know, you got to have a little bit of edge mm. uh, because, you know, people depend on you. Now, I got my friend down here housing after six years. So homeless on the street for six years. And I got her and her boyfriend housing. You know, when she came up to me when she got housing, I mean, man, what a battle that was. I was like, man, yeah, when I hear people try to get housing, I just keep thinking to myself, I'm like, just trying to get housing is punishing. She got a nice place, not an SRO, mm-hmm. a suite with a kitchen and a bedroom and a shower and all that stuff. And she came up to me and she was so happy. And uh, she showed showing me pictures of her phone, of her place. And she was just like, I didn't want to show you any pictures until I had it all set up. And, and uh, she was so proud of her home. And you know what she said? Her exact words were, 99 problems. And who'd have thought that getting housing would have solved 90 of them, guy? Wow. And I just looked at her and I said, yeah, you damn right. And she goes, I'm working on the other nine right now. Mm-hmm. Boom. So you, you got to, you know, mentally you have a mental health issue. And it's exasperated by the challenge of being homeless. Mm-hmm. 
that's just a bad combination. Yeah. You know, people need some stability to actually have that safety. Because living on the street is one thing. You think you sleep, you don't. You have to be alert, protective, protect your stuff at all costs. Because somebody could just come around and mess with you and take it. Mm. And so you never rest. Your brain never shuts off. And drugs for me and sleep, that bad combination. Mm. So, and for people down here, it's the same thing. I think sleep debt can be worse than the drug. I want to double back. Just, you were talking about doing your time. And before when, you know, you're in juvenile detention, I'm curious the difference being in jail versus juvenile detention. Um, I'm curious about that. But also you had mentioned that going to jail is incarceration. It's not rehabilitation. So maybe if you can speak to that on a, on a personal level and what your time was like, what, what was it like being in jail? Yeah, yeah I mean, in juvenile, uh, the difference is, I mean, it's huge. Yeah. You're going into the adult prison system, especially the federal penitentiary, there's a level of intimidation. Mm-hmm. You roll up, the, just the outside of it. Yeah, rows of like a field of barbed wire, mm. like a football field. Mm. Just barbed wire on the bottom, big chain fence, barbed wire on the top, and then you know, level of intimidation, knowing that when you roll in there, there's people never getting out, mm. and you're only going in there doing a couple of years. And your real thing is like, okay, how do I, how do I do the time, get through it? And uh, for me, I was well respected in in prison. Uh, I got along with people. Um, I had, you know, I treat you treat me good. I'm gonna treat you good. Mm. I think too. I came with a, a level of caution, and people respected that on the street too. Was knowing that uh, you know, you're gonna screw with me, I'm gonna screw with you, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't stop screwing. So people were just like, yeah, it's just. You know, we used to have clicks down here, and people used to be like, let me tell you something about Tony. Just leave him alone mm. because if you start a war with him, he ain't going to stop mm. and he's going to keep coming and he'll come. He'll get you when you're least expecting it, but he'll come. And so you, there was that, that respect to that. And so that respect carried over in prison as well. Mm. And I wasn't afraid to fight. Mm. That's one thing that I used to tell people down here. What's your best advice of surviving down here? If somebody is going to get aggressive with you, you have to fight. Mm. If you're not going to fight, you don't have to stab them. We weren't stabbing people. Yeah. I mean, I used to tell people, punch them in the nose. Mm. Why the nose? Because it hurts. <laughs> the, nose, <laughs> the nose will hurt. You get punched in the nose, you know. You don't want to fight anymore when you get punched in the nose. Nobody does. And so people are like, okay, look, this scar here is from a fight where somebody... You know, stab me right in my ear. Mm-hmm. Look my, above here. There's like knuckles from rings that, you know, my whole body, my wife describes it as like the scars. Uh, and I, I call them beauty marks. Yeah. But it describes the story of, of survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, I walk with a limp uh, because of, you know, my leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the one thing for me is that, you know, I, I was prepared to protect not only myself, but anybody that uh, I cared about. Mm-hmm. And so I saw a lot of times, too, a lot of predatorial people coming down here taking advantage of people. I wouldn't have any crap with that. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, you did, you're not coming down here taking advantage of my friends. Mm-hmm. 
and that's how I was. And so, and I, and I, I and, and that's, uh, street has a, there's a little sense of street justice too as well. You know, I think, I think some, in some ways, some of it gets lost down here today. Mm. I think a lot of the old school guys that I still talk with down here, they say, oh, it's terrible. Dude, it's mm. like mayhem. Mm. Whereas before there was that. Uh, Sorry. That's all right. It's a coffee machine. <laughs> <laughs> this time, this time it's, I'm the boy. Right, yeah. It's going on. Sorry. And, uh, and, um, and, you know, some people are, you know, we, we look back at the way things were and the way things are today. And I think it's just caused out of desperation. But, you know, there's still that level degree that uh, you just have to, you have to really protect yourself. And so mm-hmm. I did. Did you learn anything being in prison that society would want you to learn for going to jail absolutely nothing yeah. I, mean, I used to tell a judge sentenced me to two years and i'd say to my lawyer i'd be like i could do that on my head <laughs> like, he'd laugh he'd be like well, you're pretty optimistic eh?" i was like well how long is that 16 months i gotta do that's to be easy you know what you go to the penitentiary let me tell you what it is it's like you get a gym bigger than fitness world Right, the food there is surprise. Best pancakes in the world are in Kent Institution in in Agassiz. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I'd be like, these pancakes need to be bottled up and sold out of the prison <laughs> to the general public because they're the best freaking pancakes I ever had in my life. And yeah, so jail really, you know what it taught me? I I made a few more connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, probably met some people I probably shouldn't have met. Mm-hmm. And got myself into, you know, deeper troubles when I got out. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it's just about incarceration, not about rehabilitation. Yeah. And that's where you look at it and be like, and the majority of people that are in prison, drug related. Mm-hmm. And that tells you something. Like, oh, you're in here <laughs> for drugs mm-hmm. or using drugs or did a crime because of getting drugs or whatever it was. And, you know, you have to shift away from that. And... Um, you know, I think we're getting to a, to a, you know, decriminalization is one thing, but then you have to have supports to support people because not everybody down here wants to continue using drugs either. Mm-hmm. The majority of people I talk to down here are trying, trying to stop using. Yeah. But there's just, when there's nowhere to go, it becomes this vicious cycle of prison, incarceration, uh, parole violation, a revolving door back out. You know, you're, this is what prison does. This is the rehabilitation that prison gives you. Mm-hmm. On the day of your release, we're going to give you a welfare check. We're going to drop you off at the bus stop, and you're homeless. Mm-hmm. And then when I come back into the downtown east side and I get arrested a week later for doing something else, you're going to be like, well, put them back in jail. Mm-hmm. Let's teach them another lesson. And it's like, Yeah. That's your rehabilitation, dropping me off at a bus stop homeless and saying, okay, best of luck, my friend. See you next time. Mm. And that's where we fail. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what can make that better? A place to go? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like a place that has like some some safety mm-hmm. like your own place yeah you can't figure it out if you're doing a two-year prison sentence that right this person's homeless maybe we should try to get him access to housing before he gets released probably be a good concept yeah you'd think do nothing 
you know, oh, wait, let's sign them up for the substance abuse management program in jail where they hand out coffee and cookies and you listen to a prison guard talk to you about recovery. Mm. Who knows nothing about recovery? Mm. You're just kind of like, oh, come on. Mm. Like, really? Mm. You know, and um, I'd grown up pretty much in prison. And I met a lot of even prison guards through prison. Even the last time I was incarcerated, I remember the the officer who knew me since juvenile. And she was just like, guy, we getting old together. And I was like, oh, it's so painful. <laughs> She's like, guy, man, you do so good in jail. And I was like, yeah, because there's, you know, there's a structure, there's an mm. environment. There's a, I, I know what I got to do here. I understand it. Yeah. Outside, it's confusing. There's too many, too many uh, loose turns and zigs and zags, and I don't got any place to live and no stability. And you know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to function out there. Mm. And uh, that's where, you know, change is one thing. You have a desire to change, but if you ain't taught the things you need to change, you're really left up to your own devices to change. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work out. I had to learn. Mm. I, had to, I had to have somebody teach me. And with my ADHD, I don't learn by handing me a piece of paper. I'm a visual. Show me. Yep. Show me how to live. Don't tell me how to do it. Mm. Telling me how to do it is just like, give me a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> it ain't going to work. Yeah. And so when you show me, you know, when I got hired at VCH, you know what they asked me? <laughs> they said, uh, said, do you know how to work a computer i said well i tell you what i do know i know which ones are worth the most money <laughs> and they were like we're gonna hire a tech guy to come in here for two weeks to help you yeah. and he didn't when he handed me the piece of paper about how to work it i was like no no no, no. look you do it and i'm gonna watch you mm. and so i have a photographic memory and so i'm not good remembering always names but when i see you do something my brain picks it up and I just get good at it. And so that's how he taught me. For He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, you want me to just show you how to do it? Yeah, yeah, the paper thing, we'll just leave that as off to the side right now. But And so he'd be, okay, so when a, customer, when a client comes in, this is what you do. And he showed me. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get started to get it like that. And he was like, oh, yeah, dude, you're picking it up. And I picked it up relatively quick. Mm. I mean, I'm not computer literate or anything but i mean i mean my daughter she works the ipad better than i do i'm just like what's the password here it's like oh what that's like my daughter just grabs it and i'm like yeah so you know but but that's the thing you know i had to you know obviously i mean i wish everybody could have a a partner like like my wife or you know somebody that had a lot of, I mean, definitely a lot of uh, compassion, but also, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the ability to, to believe. Mm. She believed, so I believed. Mm. And sometimes that's what it takes. I didn't believe. I didn't, yeah, I mean, when people say to me, it'd be like, Do you, can you imagine your life being what it is today? I'd be like, I'd be getting high in the back alley if you're telling me that what my life was going to turn out to. Mm. It just... You know, I didn't, I didn't honestly, I didn't know, Mm. but I knew one thing I wanted to, I just wanted to help people. Mm. I am sick and tired of taking from people. Yeah. And that's what I tell that to people. Mm. Hey, you want to, you want to try something? What? 
try helping somebody else. Yeah. It just might make you feel better about yourself. And, but you have to continue to work on yourself because I know a lot of people who are really good at helping others. They just weren't good at helping themselves mm. and they're, they're gone sadly. And so I always had a kind of balance and I'm always challenged. God, I'm always challenged at home to change. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my wife's a real motivator of change and doesn't want to pass on generational trauma, even her own traumas in past as well. And so we do really, that's probably the most hardest work I've ever done mm. is not passing on the, the, the abuse and the trauma and, to our kids mm. and so our kids are definitely growing up in a way better healthier environment mm. than either myself or my wife grew up in how do you manage that well you have to manage you have to do self-care so trauma therapy mm. uh, i like going to the gym that's kind of probably my my drug i have like uh the 80 adhd time uh uh that takes it it seeks endor uh, endorphins. Mm. So it seeks the rush. Right. So I need to always have a rush. Mm -hmm. And one of my therapeutic things is obviously uh, collecting sports cards is mm -hmm. so therapeutic for me. I just can get lost. So, you know, you still look for distractions. Um, but uh, there's a difference between, you know, happiness and distracting yourself from sadness. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I found uh, I found a little a little niche where I'm I'm good at doing you know balancing self care and um, you know helping myself and then knowing that it'll be able to be paid forward to others and so it's been uh, that's been the that's been the real the joy of it. Mm. But helping others is really man, it just does something. Mm. It makes you feel good, and it makes them feel good that you took the time to help. And I think, you know, I think a lot of times we get lost in that. Yeah. So on that note, what, you, what, are you, what are you up to today and what do you got coming up in the future here? Because you speak to school, you go to schools and stuff too, right? Yeah. Did, and, and you said also like you've gone into prison as well. Or yeah. So the prison thing is really full circle. So one of the guards that was in prison just, I mean, I've even had gang squad contact me, like Cash Heed, who's one of the liberal MLAs before he was strike force back in the day when I was rolling around with gangs. Okay. I mean, I've had them reach out, email me being like, OMG dude, unbelievable how you changed your life. Right. And, um, so they knew you. Oh yeah. Back. What was that? Like, was this, you were a teenager at the time or did yeah, teenager adult. I mean, we're talking some of the, the gang stuff. To, I mean, I mean, these guys, I used to say when I was involved with these, the gangs, the way the cops were gangs, I was like, hey, you know, we all laugh now, but I was like, you know, I respected you guys, I guess, to the level of, like, obviously I'm not living up to, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm basically, mm -hmm. you know, you got to do what you got to do. We respected that. They respected me for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. my, my thing was is that uh, it was a source of uh, acceptance. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't feel accepted anywhere else. So gang life was real easy for me mm. until it wasn't. Um, you know, I don't want to die, you know, get shot at or die in a blazing gun battle. And yeah. so the drugs overtook my life. And, you know, I just kind of moved away from that. But 
even for them, they're, you know, what a crazy story and congratulations. And, you know, I even had uh, that go, just recently one of the correction guards who knew me, he was just blown away. He's like, literally, this guy's been in here since 19, you know, 96, like clockwork for till 2013, 14 is when uh, my last sentence was. And he just reached out and he was like, I don't know if you remember me. And then I did remember him. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. And I went for coffee with him. And he says, look, man, like, we want to, I want to bring you in the prison. Yeah. Like, you know, you could help us. Like, we need some positivity in there. And I'm like, yeah, you're damn right you do. Yeah. It sucks. So we're working on, working on me going into the, the adult prison. I've been in the youth prison. I used right. to love that, going in there, talking to kids. Mm-hmm. And the kids loved it. You know, um, all every, you know, and so you just try to share your story and inspire others that no matter how far you fall, man, like, you know, you can get back up, man. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. And I think that takes a couple of things. You, you need a, a willing participant, somebody motivated to change, but sometimes that takes time. And I think we all develop things in our lives where it's like, man, I was just like, Okay, I know what happens when I do this. Like I tell people, like, hey, dude, you're never going to use drugs again? It's like, well, no, because I wind up in freaking jail all the time. Mm, yeah. I don't want to go there anymore. Yeah. And so you learn. And, I mean, I think today's day and age, too, like, like we talked about, has changed so much from when, when I was using. So, mm. What do you got? Uh, where, can, where can people... Oh yeah, find you, and if if there's anything else you you want to Twitter, mit- no, just yeah, <laughs> Twitter's one place people can find me. I just I I share my story openly on Twitter, mm-hmm. like uh, it's just my at my full name Guy Felicella on Instagram, uh, Guy Felicella Public, but also my website, which is um, GuyFelicella dot com, and you know you can reach out even i always tell people it's like you take the time to email me i'm going to take the time to respond mm. and it doesn't you know people often say oh my god you responded it's like well that's how it works you send me an email and usually it comes with a reply and i reply to everything the amount of emails that i've gotten from kids from schools mm. oh and i take the time like kids going through similar stuff that you went through or yeah just, yeah and i take the time to to reach reach back and you know try to lend them some support and mm-hmm. try to find them services that are available in their community and if there's any mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of kids struggling with a lot of stuff right now and if we don't change we're passing on that stigma and discrimination and trauma to another layer of of, of children mm-hmm. and um, and so for me it's just you know when they call, they just, you know, I know that uh, maybe small or, you know, kids have called me and asked to do projects like the grade five kids from a private school uh, called me and they were doing a project on the overdose crisis and they had their take on it, but they probably got it from their parents. Mm. And then after I did a talk with them, they were like, okay, we're just going to throw this in the garbage and actually start over because I brought back the drug policies from the Opium Act in the 1800s, uh, prohibition of alcohol, mm-hmm. which is something of the information that weren't passed on to the, maybe their parents didn't 
go farther back. Right. We go back with drugs are illicit, so that means you'll go to jail. Mm. And so they were coming to me with, you know, stuff like that. Well, if they're not going to get off drugs, we should put them in prison. And I was like, right. okay, hold, like, back the Ford up. Let me tell you how we got here. Once you give people the, I don't blame people for how they think on drug use, but I do blame you for not educating you on where it's rooted in. And once you under, discover what it's rooted in, you, I mean, you'd be like, oh my God. Yeah, it's not because we cared about people's health. It's because we cared about controlling a population of people, mm. especially indigenous or people of color, or, you know, especially with the Opium Act, which uh, right here in Vancouver, uh, discriminated against uh, Chinese settlers when they came here. Mm. When you actually look at the root causes of, this, of these laws and policies, that's what I blame people. You can't, you can't allow that racism to continue in our society today. And so that's what I try to crush. Mm. It's like, let me tell you the truth, yeah. and then you decide. And a lot of people, when they discover the truth, they're like, how come nobody talks about this? And I'm like, well, they should. Um, and I think, you know, in school systems, I push, nobody cares about the Viking treasure. Mm. I didn't care about that. I was like, ah, oh, gold coin, where is it? Do I get any? No. I don't want to learn. <laughs> Tell yeah. me something that I need to learn. Tell me. I would find that completely fascinating that prohibition was racist, mm. you know? And so those are the things that we need to change in our society in order to educate, to remove the stigma so that if somebody is using substances, they won't use alone. Or if they feel discriminated against, that they'll be able to talk about it. You know, I feel for the kids, man. They're battling like COVID, mm. or whether they get vaccine, not get vaccine. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, like my mom could get sick. My grandmother might die. Yeah. Um, and a layer of anxiety in their own lives, social media, mm. got to look a certain way, got to be a certain way. Mm. And when I went to school, it was like you fit in four categories. You're a jock, nerd, mod, or you're a rocker. And if you weren't one what of those- mod? Is that like- Mod was like kind of like the, the dark, the, the like dark- goth Yeah, the yeah, goth, like they, goth. Like there's, yeah. There's a different word for it for every generation. Yeah, and yeah. if you didn't fit into that category- you're like, oh, shit, I got to pick somebody quick. And so, you know, there's, there's so many different aspects to, this, to these four categories, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so uh, one of the things I know a lot of you struggle with, too, is like, you know, people of sexual identity have been coming up to me and talking to me like, that's why I use drugs, man, because I can't mm -hmm. be who I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, that's sad, man, yeah. that they're so afraid to mm. share that because they're going to be judged. Yeah. That's bullshit. I don't like, that's what makes me angry is that, especially with when I see youth, man, is that, um, you know, it hurts. That's what hurts the most because mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I was afraid to tell you how I felt because I was afraid you were going to judge me and I see that still going on today. Yeah. When do you think you're going to have, like, some of these talks with with your because you, you're a parent right so it's it's you're experiencing this on the front lines with your kids and let alone you know other kids out there that reach out to you yeah Is that something like i i mean i don't have kids but i always think it's like it's got to be tough to you know one it's got to be tough to be a kid these yeah. days of social media for all the reasons you just listed and especially if kids are dealing with stuff but it's got to be tough to be a parent too under yeah like how do you navigate that as a parent right 
I mean, they're going to know my story. You know, they see dad on the news sometimes. They don't care. You know, clean the cat litter, dad. <laughs> <laughs> no celebrity here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm going to be open and honest and, yeah. you know, tell them, you know, tell them that, uh, you know, your, their dad struggled. They, they know some. My daughter heard me talk. My wife came up. G asked, that, what, what's jail? Mm. And my, I was like, she goes, did you talk to G? I was, she, I was like, no, I didn't say anything. Mm. And then um, she was like, well, maybe she heard you talking to somebody. I was like, well, what did you tell her? I didn't tell her anything. It's <laughs> go talk to your dad. Yeah. <laughs> and, but she never came up to me. But obviously, I'm, I'm going to, you know, say that, hey, you know, uh, your dad made some mistakes. And, and this is what happened. And, you know, a lot of them caused by him but a lot also caused by by a system that's in place as well mm. um and yeah i just want to be honest and open and to uh to a degree to when they're uh have the ability to process the information yeah yeah, yeah. final thoughts anything you want to i just say? think as, as us as people you know we, we have to look past a lot of the things, what we see in the downtown east side, a lot of it we look at associated with a drug issue. Sure. It's also a, a poverty issue. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame harm reduction for poverty. Yeah. Poverty has existed from years of inaction. And so we have a poverty issue. Yes, we have a drug poisoning crisis as well. And so we just, as people have to look beyond that. I, I do tours with uh, a lot of government officials down here, and I had an official one time just break down and start crying. Uh, and I was like, what are, you, what are you okay? She's like, yeah, it's just overwhelming. And I was like, what's overwhelming? And she's like, I see people struggling. And I said, now you get it. You didn't see the drug use. You saw the person. There's mm-hmm. a difference. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. behind every person is a story. And if you don't know the story, don't be so quick to point fingers. Because sometimes using drugs is a reasonable response to years of inaction and pain and trauma and sadness and low self-esteem and acceptance. And when you understand that, then you see the value of the human being and you think to yourself, like, how can I do something to make, like I change everything? Mm. how can I do something just to make that one moment for that person a little better mm. maybe that's walking by and saying hi maybe that's just grabbing a coffee here you go and I tell you the doorway over here on Carroll Street right across from the West Hotel it's where I used to sleep mm-hmm. I was sleeping there at Christmas Eve nine years ago no, yeah that nine, nine years ago last Christmas I'm in that doorway and a lady walked by snow cold I'm sleeping and she wakes me up and she hands me a coffee kneels down gives me a hug pulls out 50 bucks and says merry christmas and gets up and walks away i've never forgotten what she did and i've never seen her again in my life i don't know what she who she is i have so many questions was Mm -hmm. that your coffee did you just give me your coffee or did you see me there and then go buy a coffee and then come back and give me a coffee why would you stop Mm -hmm. nobody stops but you did. Now, I have so many questions to that, but one thing I took away from that is at that time, it was such a challenging time in my life. Mm. 
that somebody would just stop and, and care. But give me a hug. It was the hug that got me. Yeah. I was more stunned. It wasn't the 50 bucks or the coffee, but she gave me a hug. Yeah. She didn't look at me as somebody that was disposable. She saw the humanity in a person. Mm. And it really kind of, I never forgot. I've never, even though I was, you know, a lot of times induced with substances or angry, I never forgot all the, the amount of kindness, random acts of kindness that I witnessed in my life. And that has taught me a lot of stuff of like, a lot of learning of like, man, look what happens when you're kind. Mm. People react differently. Mm. And so that's just how I picked that up. I, got, I didn't, was never taught that. Yeah. So I was taught by others. I watched. Mm. And when you can see and you understand how you learn, I learned through seeing. So I saw a lot. And so for the ones that didn't treat me good, I forgive you. And for the ones that did, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, yeah. thanks so much for doing this, guys. We <laughs> yeah. really appreciate it. We'll have all your links down below. Yeah. But thanks for taking the time. No, thanks for having me, man. It was great. Each episode of Ethno Forum is available to watch in full on YouTube as well. You can head over to our YouTube channel, Ethno, to consume that content. And to keep up with Ethno day to day, you can do so on Instagram and TikTok at ethno.official.